beginning end, and we are thrilled to be with you all for this learning today with uh, a tremendous educator on Darche Shalom, Ways of Peace, the Path to Building Community. Uh, a very, very important topic today, and one that's often misunderstood that we're going to dive more deeply into. Rabbi Rachel Berkovitz is a senior faculty member at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Yerushalayim, where she's been teaching Mishnah, Talmud, and Halacha for over 20 years. Uh, Rachel lectures widely in both Israel and abroad, especially on topics concerning women and Jewish law and a Jewish sexual ethic. She's the halachic editor and a writer for Hilchot Nashim, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance's halachic source guide series, recently published by Koren Publishing. Rabbi Berkowitz is a founding member of Congregation Shira Chadasha, a halachic partnership synagogue, and serves on their halacha committee, my favorite shul on the planet. In June 2015, uh, she received rabbinic ordination from Rabbis Herzl, Hefter, and Daniel Sperber. Uh, so, uh, Rabbi Rachel Berkowitz, thank you so much for being here. We're excited to learn with you. Wow, what a nice introduction. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, what we're going to do in this hour that we have together is learn a little bit of Mishnah together. I know my bio was very focused on halacha, but one of the things I love to do the most is study Mishnah. And one of the reasons I love learning Mishnah so much is that I think that when you look at the language and structure used in the Mishnah, it's really a window into the theology and philosophy of the early rabbis. And many of the messages that I see embedded in the Mishnah are still very, very relevant for us today. So what I'm hoping to do is we're going to learn through two Mishnayot that are at the end of the fifth chapter of Tractate Gitin. Now, Tractate Gitin deals with marriage law, but we're not going to be looking at that at all. What's really interesting about Tractate Gitin is it's nine chapters long and smack in the middle of it are two chapters that are sort of a collection of Mishnayot that are said um, for tikkun olam, um, which is a very key and hot phrase today, right? How one fixes or improves the betters the world. Um, and what's very interesting is it's sort of a collection of these Mishnayot. And then the last two Mishnayot in this collection deal with a subset of what I think the rabbis are saying is a subset of tikkun olam, and that is darkei shalom, the pathways or the, the I guess, pathways in, of peace. Um, and so what's really interesting to me is why, in, if we have nine chapters of the laws of divorce, why in the kernel, kernel center is this unit and bundle about repairing the world and then focusing in on the interactions between pe uh, people for the interest of peace. So academics would say, well, the first mission of this whole unit is linked to the laws of divorce law. And so since it was an oral tradition, everything was bundled together and, and it's easy to memorize. And that's why it was placed here. I would like to argue differently. I would like to say that it is not by chance that um, in the place where we're talking about the breakdown of the most intimate human relationship uh, between a husband and a wife, where something must have gone wrong in their interpersonal relationships for it to end in divorce, this is the place where the rabbis thought about how we need to fix the world and that their focus at the end of what, how one needs to repair the world has to do with the interactions between people in the interest of peace. And that it's really an appropriate place for this to be discussed. 
At one point, I, I actually tried to figure out, um, it's very close to actually the core of the entire six orders of the Mishnah. It's not perfect. Nowadays, our breakdown of our chapters and our tractates isn't exactly how it was originally, but it's actually very close to the entire heart and center of the oral law. And for me, these issues are really essential to what I think of are sort of the meta tenets that Judaism is based on. So that's why I want to talk to you about them and share them today. So as I said, we're going to focus on the last two Mishnayot in the chapter, which open with, I can share my screen. I'm going to share my screen here. Hold on one second. Um, here. Okay. Um, open with this, this statement. These are the things that the rabbi said, Mipnei Darkei Shalom right, for the ways of or in the interest of peace. And what's really interesting about this collection of things that are said in the, in the interest of peace is we're going to see that there are going to be 10 examples. It's two Mishnayot, but if you see my numbering, there are 10 examples that are going to be listed. And whenever you see 10 examples of something, you know that it's like a, a neat package and picture being brought. And the idea of Darkei Shalom, the interest of peace, is going to be like hammered over our head over and over again, right? The introductory statement says these are the things said in the interest of peace. And then after every example, it's going to say, Mipnei Darkei Shalom, Mipnei Darkei Shalom. You see it after basically every example. And then at the very end of this second Mishnah, we're going to look at the whole thing in depth in one minute. Um, the last example, and we're going to discuss this in depth, is an example where someone is sholim b'shlomam mivnei darkei shalom. It's talking about greeting people in the interest of peace, but the fact that like the last example is talking about asking someone about someone shalom because of darkei shalom like really hammers home that idea. And so we have a very neat bundle here. And um, what's even more interesting about this neat bundle is we're going to see that the end of the first Mishnah is going to be a case that is going to deal with agriculture and non-Jews. And the end of the second Mishnah is going to be a case where it deals with agriculture and non-Jews. So even with the two Mishnayot, there's an interesting structure within them of, of parallel. And, and I really want to unpack what I think is, is going on here and being said here. Um, that being said, the second Mishnah actually appears in Tractate Shvi'it. In the, it's going to it's good that I'm teaching this now because we're in the sabbatical year here in Israel, um, but in some of the laws have to do with the sabbatical year. But uh, it, it's a Mishnah that appears twice within the six orders of the Mishnah, which is always interesting when you have Mishnah like this, because and, and it in some ways its true home is in, in the tractate about the sabbatical year. You're going to see that two of the three examples from it are about the sabbatical year. And so if the goal of Mishnah was just to convey the laws and if we just look at this Mishnah as a body of law, I wouldn't need to repeat this Mishnah twice. I would put it in the place where the relevant laws are, and I would have that information, and that's enough. But because I believe that there's also this sort of theological, meta-philosophical idea being presented, it's brought here because it really adds something, we'll see, to the story that's not being told about the sabbatical laws, but the story that the Mishnah wants to tell us about how to interact with other people. And so it, it's brought twice in the Mishnah because it serves two different purposes. That's my introduction. If this was a normal type of Mishnah class, which I like to teach, I would let you engage with the text yourself in Chavruta, but 
We've decided due to this format, it would, it's best if I'm gonna teach out loud the Mishnah to you. So that's what we're gonna do. So I'm gonna read through the Mishnah once and explaining what it says here, and then we'll go back and analyze them. I wanna say together, but it will be me and there'll be a chance for you to ask questions at the end. Um, okay, so as I said, the text opens, these are the things that Amru, this is interesting in its own right, that the rabbi said, right? What we're being introduced to is seems to be rabbinic law, a rabbinic idea um, about how one interacts with others in the interest of peace. So example, and this is gonna be like an eclectic number of examples. We're just gonna go through them and understand them and then analyze them. So example one is something that you might be familiar with. It says, This is talking about the public Torah reading. And it says that there's a hierarchy in some way to the order of the aliyot. The Kohen is going, the priest is going to get the first aliyah. The Levite is gonna read after him in the second aliyah. And afterwards, then Israel is going to read. And this is in the interest of peace. Now, what, what is, what, how does this bring peace? So anyone who's ever been part of a synagogue, I think you know that sometimes there can be infighting amongst people who are close together and come to pray particularly having to do with who should be honored and who should get this honor and who should get what Aliyah and who's more important. Unfortunately, this is how people are. So on the one hand, this could be what it's about. And it's interesting what the Mishnah chooses to do, right? It doesn't choose to create like a rotation and we'll all take turns. It does create a hierarchy. And although I think in the modern world, we're less comfortable with hierarchies, the idea of transparency and knowing that everyone's going to get their turn and what the rules are going to be, I think does alleviate tensions and people are prepared and there's less fighting. An alternate understanding of this Gemara actually zooms in on like the, the importance of Kohen is something very interesting that we know, right? In the temple, when the temple was standing, the Kohen was the be all and end all. The Kohen got all the honors and got to do all the service and all the ritual. And post temple destruction, when we are moving towards the synagogue and Torah reading and things like that, the Kohen loses some of his status and it actually opens it up more to a sharing of all of the Jewish people here in the Mishnah. Um, we're looking at all of the male Jewish people being defined by your status of your father. Um, but uh, in some ways, the Darkei Shalom could be that the Kohen still reads first, despite the fact that he's the Kohen has lost his status to some of the rabbis, he is still being honored in, in what he represented for the Jewish people when the temple was standing. And that could also be an aspect of the Shalom that's being brought. So that's example number one. Example, as I'm learning through this, you can start to think, I'm, I'm interested in thinking like, why is the structure this way? Why these examples? Why in this order? So I hope that everyone who's listening can start thinking about that. Example number two is a little bit confusing. It says Marvin, um, this you need a little bit of background information. It's talking about an Erev on Shabbat, a way to join um, different domains together so that carrying can happen. This is slightly different than the Erev you might know in your town. This is an Erev Chatzerot. It's an, uh, it's an Erev that is going to link, the, the, join together the people who live around the courtyard. If I live on a joint courtyard, my home is my private domain. And the courtyard is a shared domain that has a quasi-public status because it isn't my personal domain. If I want to be able to carry within that courtyard on Shabbat, 
They have to do something to join it together. And that is done not by linking a string around or creating a fence around, but it's done by making a joint meal together where we're all contributing to the food and we're all gonna partake from the food. And so this Mishnah says that when we place this food that's part of the Arab, uh, of this Arab of the Chatserot, right, in some apartment buildings I know in big cities, you might have this so you could carry in the, in the hallways, people might have a box of matzah or someone held in someone's house. Um, you, and we're told that you should do it in the older house, right? The house that's been the previous host of it. Um, should always get to host. Once again, I'm not like taking turns. We're not sharing the responsibility. One person is doing this because of Berkei Shalom. First of all, I want to point out that the concept of an Eruv, right, which is bringing domains together, in this case is bringing people together. It's an idea of like joining together. And we had here Kohen, Levi, and Yisrael, like the whole Jewish people is joining together in the endeavor of the reading of the Torah. Um, here, the question is, what, what, what would be the non-shalom? What would be the, 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 the fighting or the unease that could happen if, if the Erev wasn't hosted by the oldest house? And here, there are two different opinions. The Gemara, and, and therefore many of the medieval commentaries on the Mishnah, suggest that this could cause suspicion, right? If, if it's the Greenbergs always hosted the Eruv, and then someone came into their house one Shabbat and didn't see it because the Shapiro family was hosting it, that person might be suspicious that, and they saw people carrying, that people in the courtyard were carrying without an Eruv. Um, that's one possibility. And definitely like people talking about other people and people thinking about other people and making assumptions about people's behaviors is a way that seeds distrust and, and, and infighting. The, uh, the Ramba Maimonides has a different shot to this Mishnah, a different meaning to the Mishnah that to me, I think works a little better. He suggests that the person who hosted the, the Eruv didn't have to pay into the pot. Like there was a benefit from being the host and you wouldn't have to pay into the pot. And so therefore people might fight, might, might, it might be something you'd fight about to say, I want it at my house. No, I want it at my house. And then you have to decide whose house it is. Either way, it assumes that something about this will, will calm things down and make shalom either between the inside the neighbors or how people look at the neighbors. Source number three says, This is when people are, are sharing natural resources. They're sharing water. I have, um, there is sort of a, a channel that is bringing water to the fields and, and people have fields along this channel. And for me to fill up, to be able to water my field, I have a cistern that's right next to the channel that I'm going to fill up to preserve water when there's a lot of water and then I can hold it for times when I need to water my field. For me to be able to get the water from the channel into my cistern, I need to dam up the channel a bit so the water will flow into my cistern. And so the question is, what's the order that we're going to get to get to dam up our dam it up, right? Are we going to do it haphazardly? If we do it haphazardly, no one's ever going to get any water. Because whenever I dam, anyone who's farther down the channel for me is not going to be able to have any water for that moment. So here too, there's a hierarchy that you might feel might be unfair. That the person who has the land that's closest to the waterhead will be allowed to, to um, dam it up and receive water in his cistern earliest. Um, this too, in some ways makes sense, right? Maybe that person 
paid for that land and that land's more expensive because it's near the waterhead and therefore they deserve rights. There's also just the plain thing that the closer you are to the waterhead, the more power you have. And, um, and it, this might just be a, sort of, this makes sense that this person should get to go first, but this is the rule. And as we know today, there's still countries that fight about these things, right? Where rivers go through to more than one country, people building dams, causing it to go into other countries. And there, this is something that definitely people fight about. It could cause a lot of infighting. So, okay, example four and five and six are, are similar in some way because in each one of these examples, we are going to have a dispute where the Tanakama, where the majority view, the first view of the Mishnah is gonna say something and then Rabbi Yossi continuously is going, in all three cases, is going to disagree in a similar manner. And so we're gonna look. Case number one is about traps. Traps that um, traps that I've set for wild animals, and it says mitudot chayav ofok b'dagim yesh b'hav mishum gezel yivnedar keshalom. Rabbi Yosi Omer gezel gamor. Okay, I also need to give you a little bit of halachic background here. Normally, the way I acquire property according to Jewish law is I need to physically bring it into my domain. Right. Normally, I, I I could lift something up to show that I brought it into my domain. If it's a larger animal, I could pull it on it and exert power to show that I brought it into my domain. But to acquire something that has no omer for or to transfer ownership, the the deal is sealed when I brought the animal into my domain. Now, animals that are out in the wild, they're hefker. They don't belong to anyone. They're ownerless. So these are traps that I set. And I leave them there and I'm gonna come and return to hopefully find the animal. I'm sorry, you know, truly for the for those of us who, uh, who want to trap animals and eat them, but that's what the mission is talking about. Um, and so and so I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe do a lot of research, a lot of work. Where's the best place to set my trap? How am I gonna go about doing it? And then I'm gonna leave the traps and hopefully come back. In the course of the time when I'm away, an animal might get trapped there and someone else might show up and be like, wow, here's my delicious dinner to eat. And they might wanna take the animal from my trap. Now, halakhically, legally, because I have never acquired this animal, even though I did a lot of work, I never took this animal into my domain. The trap is in the, you know, in the forest that are public to everyone. It's not legally stealing. If the, if the second person comes and takes the animal before I get it. But the Mishnah says in the first opinion, we're gonna treat it like stealing in the interest of peace, right? Because I, the owner of the trap, definitely felt like I've been robbed. I'll show up, I see that there was an animal there and someone broke my chain and took it out. And I'm gonna be very, very angry. Someone, I'm gonna feel like I've been robbed, even though halakhically, I haven't been robbed. So legally, it's not stealing and the person could take it from me. But in the interest of peace, we say, don't do it. Don't take that animal. Rabbi Yossi disagrees, and he thinks it's Gezel Gamor. He thinks in this situation, it's not a dark shalom aspect. We should treat it as stealing, right? The Gemara asks, what's the difference between the Tanakama and Rabbi Yossi, right? Because the Gemara understands that Rabbi Yossi means it's rabbinic stealing, because it's definitely not um, according to the Torah, because you do need to acquire it. And they say the difference is, if I could take you to court, right? According to the first view, if someone said to me, should I, can I take this animal? I would say, don't do it. It's gonna, you're gonna be like stealing. It's not good for interest of peace. 
But if I then took the animal, the, the owner of the trap would have no recourse. They couldn't do anything to get the animal back. According to Rabbi Yossi, they could take me to court and I could either return the animal or pay reparations. And there's a significant difference um, um, practically between these two cases. That's case number four. Case, I know these seem like all over the place and I promise you something interesting will come from all of it. Case number five is a, also a really interesting case. Same thing about how one acquires something you have to remember. Um, so A, I have to acquire it by bringing in my domain, but B, I have to have cognizance and understanding about the actions that I'm taking. And there's a group of three people that exist as a category in halakha that the rabbis understood that they didn't have cognizance. It's cheresh katan. Katan minors don't have cognizance because their mental capabilities have not yet developed like adulthood. Obviously, they have some level of competence, but we don't hold them responsible for their actions. We, don't, we definitely don't think that they can acquire things. Uh, Shota is someone who has um, intellectual disabilities and therefore lacks the same level of cognizance that a, um, that a person who does not have those same intellectual uh, disabilities has. And the rabbis say, here too think that they cannot be held responsible and we cannot assume that they know the difference between, between acquiring and not acquiring. And the most challenging one for us in the modern day is the cheresh, which we explain as someone who lacks hearing and therefore lacks the ability to speech, for speech, right? In the time period that the rabbis lived, when someone unfortunately was deaf and therefore couldn't communicate well, they thought that there was something intellectually wrong with their brain. Um, although now we know today is uh, obviously that someone who is hearing impaired has nothing to do with their mental capabilities, intellectual capabilities. But the assumption here is that all three of these people lack a certain level of cognizance. And normally, because of that, to protect them, we don't let them engage in acquiring objects or business deals because we don't want someone to come up to the kid and be like, that's a great, you know, 10 speed bike you have there. I'll trade you this action figure for it. And the kid will be, oh, great. I really want that action figure. And I really don't like this bike I got for my birthday and just hand it over to you because they have no sense of right and wrong and people or money or value and people can and can people can trick them and swindle them. However, this case that is being brought in the Mishnah says the law the fines of anyone in this category now this is what you have to understand so let's say there's a hundred dollar bill on the ground right that's that is hefker anyone who finders keepers losers weepers right if you find money on the street there's no way it doesn't have any indistinguishable markings anyone is allowed to pick that money up and then because they picked it up they own it they found that money they don't have to there's no way to return it to the lost owner right you find a five dollar bill on the street so, but if someone in the category who doesn't have the capabilities of acquiring things because they don't have cognizance picks up that $100 bill, so the Katan picked up the $100 bill, and then I could legally come and literally take that money out of his hands and it wouldn't be stealing because it's as if it was still lying on the ground because his picking it up doesn't legally acquire it for him because normally this protects him. In this situation though, He's going to feel like you stole from him, right? Most of these people, at least a 10-year-old, has a cognizance that they found that $100 bill and they were going to buy a lot of action figures with it. And if you take it away from them, they're going to be pretty darn mad. So same thing here. The Tanakhama says we're going to treat it like stealing in the interest of peace. And Rabbi Yossi says it's going to be 100% stealing. 
Case number six. The Ani is, um, there's a tree that is also heifered, it's ownerless, and the Ani is trying to harvest olives from it. The way you harvest olives is you spread out a sheet or a blanket on the ground. You take a, some type of stick or branch and you hit the tree and the olives fall down and then you gather things up. This is how people still harvest olives today when they're doing it by hand. And same thing here. The tree didn't was ownerless. The poor person is coming to collect food. They've done a heck of a lot of work hitting things down, but they never, they didn't pick it. It's not, if you picked an orange with your hand, they would have acquired it if the orange was ownerless. But here they never took their hands and took the olives. And so if someone comes along and is like, wow, a huge pile of olives lying on this blanket. Great for me, I'm gonna make some amazing olive oil and takes it. The, um, legally, halakhically, it's not stealing. But once again, the Mishnah says, we're going to treat it. We're going to, what's underneath the, the tree on the ground, we're going to treat it like stealing in the interest of peace. And Rabbi Yossi says, Gezel Gamor. Last example in this Mishnah, and then we'll pause and try to analyze the structure of this Mishnah before we go on to the next one. Um, the Torah, the Torah has delineated a number of halachot that we do to protect our poor and having to do with harvesting and having to do with agriculture. We do, we do three different things. We, um, we uh, the gleanings, you harvest your field and there's still some corn left on the stalks, still some wheat on the stalks, the poor person is allowed to come and get that. You've made piles and bundles of your sheaves of wheat, you forgot one, the poor person's allowed to come get that. And pay up that you leave a corner of your field and you don't harvest it at all for the poor to come and use it. This halacha says, Even though the Torah was delineating the needs for the Jewish people, we do not prevent the hand of the non-Jewish poor from coming into our fields and gathering these things. We don't say like, no, you know, we only want to, you know, we're a soup kitchen and we're only going to treat the Jewish poor first. We are open. We don't prevent anyone from coming and benefiting from the laws of the Torah. Okay. Those are the first seven examples in this Mishnah. So if we were doing a class and you had spent time at Chafruta, I would say to everyone, so what do you think? <laughs> like, what do you notice? Why these examples? Obviously, we can think of many, many more cases where there could be fighting, where people could feel upset, where people could feel hurt. Like, there are tons of places where that happens. But why these examples? So I'm just going to tell you what I think since we're not, we don't have time for conversation. Um, so what was interesting to me when I looked at these examples, here, I will share my screen. One other thing, wait, there's my screen share. Can I do it like this? Yes. Did that switch? Do you see a different picture now? Yes? Shmuley, I can yeah. see your face. Yes? Yeah. yeah, okay. So what's interesting to me is the locations of the, of the examples, right? We first had the synagogue, then we had the house with the Arab, then we had the water system and the fields, and then we had the traps, the forest, and lakes. So what's interesting to me about this is like, this is a description of like any type of town. Right, the synagogue is maybe at your core. You have people who live around it. 
Then outside the village of the homes, then you have the fields where people are working in agriculture. And then farther for that is the land that doesn't, is ownerless and Hefkar and has forests and lakes. So even though these seemed like random examples, the picture that we have painted is of human civilization, the hu human town, etc. And then in the second um, uh, way I wanted to look at it, I was looking at like what my relationship is to the people. So at the core, at the core, I had my prayer community, people who have similar beliefs to me. And, and I gather to learn Torah, read Torah, hear Torah, right? And that juxtaposed the last example of the non-Jews who are not bound by the laws of Torah, but are benefiting from the laws of Torah, right? They're the most other to me from the people who are reading Torah. But then, and then I have the people I maybe live with and I'm sharing a courtyard with or who are keeping Shabbat with me. And then I, I maybe should have switched this. I should have called others in the same field. Then I have like, co-work isn't the right word, but people who are like, we're, we're benefiting from the same resources. We're all in agriculture. We're, um, we are sharing our fields and, and like I might see them. And then there are the people that I don't know who are setting traps and that I don't really see, but are also trying to share the same resources. And then what was in interesting to me was then we had these examples of people that are sort of liminal to my core community that many times, unfortunately, are on the sidelines. People that might be very different than me. People, I should fix this. I should say people with disabilities and poor people also sound pop good. I really apologize, especially for this. I made this a long time ago and I really need to fix it. Um, but I have people who are maybe not the same age as me. I have people that are different socioeconomic backgrounds than me. I have people that may be other able than I am. And then I have people that are, are completely different from me from a religious perspective who have different beliefs than me. And yet it seems that part of what um, this text is trying to tell me is that they're all part of, they're the same as my core community. The way I interact with my core community, the way I interact with maybe the Kohen or the people that I really revere or my close neighbors that I share things with, I need to treat those same people with the same respect and the same idea of shalom, which to me is something that I think should be obvious to everyone, but sometimes unfortunately is not obvious. And I think is one of the core messages of what is being taught here in this Mishnah. That, um, that, that the people in these examples deserve the same respect as the people that I'm closer to. And everyone should be interacting with shalom. That's Mishnah number one. Let's look at Mishnah number two that I said is part of the same package. What it was interesting to me in that description of sort of like almost everyone in society, there was one main group that is missing and a group that's particularly close to my heart. And that was women. There were women were not mentioned in that first text at all. What's interesting about Mishnah number two here is that um, two of the three examples that are gonna be brought are gonna be about interactions between women. Um, women really in the realm of, of the home and the domestic, it's gonna be about barring utensils for cooking, right? Which clearly might've been the place of women in the time period of the Mishnah. But what here I think is being brought that's so interesting is this, this interpersonal relationship that women have in the realm of the home, I think is really being brought and modeled as, as good interaction for all people, which is gonna be very, very interesting. Okay, so let's look at these cases. Here too, we're gonna to need some background. 
Case number one, both of these cases is about going to be lending cooking utensils to my neighbors and friends. The thing is that these people are going to be very different than me in a number of ways. Um, case number one is Michelle Isha Lachavarta Hachashuda Ahashviit. Case number one is that a woman can lend to her friend who is, who I have suspicions doesn't keep the sabbatical year appropriately, the way I think halachically you should keep the laws of the sabbatical year. Now, the things that I'm going to be lending her, the things that I can lend to her, I'm always not so good at all these different um, utensils. I can lend her a fine sieve, a coarse sieve, a hand mill, and an oven, right? A nafcha, kvara, tanor. Now, all of these things are used for baking bread. This is how you use them. That's what you would lend them for, to bake bread. So, She's going to be taking wheat and grinding it and baking it into bread. And I think that the wheat that she's using, she somehow has not done the appropriate behaviors during the sabbatical year. I won't get into the technicality, but there's a certain point where when things naturally appear in the field, you're allowed to stockpile them in your home. But when that, when the moment shots of beer happens, when the moment when they're no more naturally in the fields, you're not really supposed to be stockpiling. I'm the commentaries think I'm suspicious that she has been transgressing this biblical prohibition. And so you might think this woman shows up at my door, she's going to do a biblical transgression, and I should say, no, I don't want to get involved. But no, I'm going to get involved. I'm allowed to lend her the utensils that I know exactly what she's going to be use them, using them for, even though I'm suspicious that her religious behavior is different than my ideals. Um, example number one and example number two, interestingly, after them don't directly say Darkei Shalom, the Darkei Shalom is going to happen down here, that I'm doing all of these because of Darkei Shalom. Let's see what example number two is. It's similar. It says, So now, difference. It's not that I think that this woman doesn't keep biblical law. Now we're talking about two groups that existed in the time period of the Mishnah. Um, one is the group of the rabbis themselves of the Tanaim, and they call themselves the Chaverim. Um, I know it makes me think of like, you know, communist Russia, but they call themselves comrades, the friends. And these women don't have names on their own right. One is the wife of, of a Chaver, so the wife of the clique of the Tanaim. She can lend to the wife of an Amharitz. Everyone who wasn't in the clique of the Tanaim was like called the average Amharitz. And the thing about Amharitz is that the rabbis, are suspicious. They're suspicious that they don't keep the laws of Tumantara of, of purity correctly. They're suspicious that they don't tithe correctly. And so we have a lot, like here too, both examples, which are really, really interesting, are examples of people that might not keep halacha the same way I do, right? Torah was at our core, and we're having people who maybe don't look at the laws of Torah the same way I do, don't keep the laws that I do, and yet these women are interacting. I assume if they're lending things to one another, they might live near each other. Um, I think there's something really interesting about the language here. The word chaver in this Mishnah, I told you, was the word for the clique of the rabbis, right? But the first clause of the Mishnah, the woman who was, I suspected, was not keeping biblical, call, uh, I, she was called chaverta, right? She was called my friend, right? So here chaverta is a person who doesn't keep biblical law the same as me. And here the word chaver amongst the men is this like inner grouping um, of the rabbi. And so when I see those two words used very closely together, I assume that, that the meaning is there. To say something about 
the interactions of women have a much more diverse and broader interaction to show us examples of Darkei Shalom. In the case of the Eshet Chaver, lending to the Eshet Amaharet, I can go a little farther. Besides lending her, um, lending her utensils, I'm also going to be permitted to, to join in a little bit to help her in the making bread. There are a number of sources that in other places, it seems like women made bread together. It's a lot of work. So it's nice if you have someone helping you. So I once again can lend her some of these utensils, but not only that, I am allowed to grind, to winnow with her and grind with her and sift with her um, up until a point. And the point where I have to stop is when they, you add the water. So taking the grain and making it into flour, I can help the whole way through and give her utensils to help. But the moment that I have to um, make it into dough, I have to step back. Then I shouldn't touch anymore. Because this is the, the moment it turns into dough is the moment that then I'm obligated to tithe it and take out the, the section of challah that I'm going to give to the Kohen. And that, that section of challah has to be done in a state of tahara, in a state of purity. And so I'm, I might be worried that now a transgression can happen because I'm worried that this woman maybe isn't going to tithe. And I'm worried that this woman might touch it and make this the kodshim, the holy aspect of the tithe, tameh. And so I don't, it says here, because I don't want to strengthen the hands of those who um, transgress. Um, and so I like, I'm, I have to like find a line in my identity where I am going to help and I'm going to support, but I have to pull back because I don't want to be actively involved when I see transgression. And then the text says, Both of these things were only said in the interest of peace. Meaning normally you might want to have more distance, but I, I don't say that. I want there to be peace between us. I want to interact. I want to do what I can to support other people and not have their feelings be hurt when they knock on my door and say, can I borrow something? And so I find some type of balance between doing things in the interest of peace might be only lending, but not being actively involved, right? I don't actively grind and sift with the woman with eat because already then I'm involved in the Avera because the, the, the grain itself is problematic. Whereas with the Ishan Amaret, I do a little bit more till the moment where there's might be a problem. Okay, I only have a few minutes left, but I, give me, I hopefully we'll get there and then we can take some questions. Um, the last example switches away from the domain of women and goes back, as I said to you, to relationships with non-Jews. It says, It gives two laws about the non-Jew. One is, I strengthen the hands of the non-Jew during the sabbatical year, but not the hands of the Jews. And two is, I greet them. Shoel shalom means a greeting, right? In modern Hebrew, we would say, give someone a dash, a drishat shalom. Like we want to know how you are, right? In Hebrew, you say, ma shalom cha, how you doing? But how is your shalom? Are you complete? How, how are you? And so here, these two examples are really, really interesting, right? We had two examples of people who don't keep halakha the same as me. And now I have the non-Jew who obviously doesn't keep the halakha the same as me because the laws of the Torah don't apply to them. And, and we saw that with the, the poor person, the laws of the Torah don't apply. Normally, they might not have a community that's supporting them. But here... What's great about the fact that the laws of the Torah don't apply to non-Jews is that during the sabbatical year, the non-Jews can work the land. And that's beneficial to me 
when the non-Jew works the land, because then I can buy the tomatoes and cucumbers from them, right? So a, a Jew, I'm not going to strengthen their hand during the sabbatical year because they're not allowed to work the land. But the non-Jew, it is beneficial to me. And the question is, what does it mean to strengthen their hand? Here we have a machloket between Rashi and, um, and Maimonides. Um, I'm happy to share the source sheet with anyone. I'm not going to read it inside in the interest of time. Um, well, maybe I will because I love text so much. Rashi says, what does it mean to strengthen the hand of the non-Jew? Masi'im mamash. I literally, I literally help them. Like I go into the field and I help plow or help uh, plant. Maimonides is a little bit shocked by the idea that a Jew during the sabbatical year would go into the field and work the land. And he says, the way I support them is bidvarim bilvad. Like if I see him working, I give him supportive thing. Like I go, great job, yippee yahoo, good planting, kolakavod to you, right? Which seems a little bit raw. I would like to suggest that Rashi is shot. Why do I want to suggest that it literally means physically helping them? Because the word machzikim I had in the Mishnah before, I had it up here where it told me that I wasn't allowed to physically help anymore after they added the water because I didn't want to strengthen the hands of those who have transgressed. Their strengthening their hand meant physically helping him. And here we have the exact same word, machzikim. And so Rashi's shot, in my opinion, that it means physically helping is correct. So this is so fascinating if you compare the two ends of each Mishnah, right? In, in the first Mishnah, we had that the laws of the Torah, which benefited the Jewish community, we can apply them in having to do with agriculture. We can let the non-Jewish poor benefit from the laws of the Torah because they didn't have the Torah and, and we want to help them out when the poor don't have anything to eat. In, the, in this Mishnah, during the sabbatical year, we're the poor who don't have any agriculture. We can't use the field. We, we are lacking things to eat. And luckily, because the non-Jews don't have the laws of the Torah, they can help us out. And we can eat from their fields just the way their poor ate from our fields. And it creates a beautiful imagery of me of how, even though despite our differences vis-a-vis -vis our beliefs in the Torah, that document can help, we can help each other um, about sustenance, about food. Okay, the last line, I'm gonna go three seconds over before you ask me any questions, because the last line is like literally the most important line. The last line says, we greet the non-Jews because of Darkei Shalom, right? And all the commentaries are like, what do you mean we greet them? Why, why do you need to tell us that we greet them? And they all add something interesting. They say even on their holidays. We greet them even on their holidays, right? Because normally, what do you do when someone says, like, how are you? Right? We answer, Baruch Hashem, I'm fine. But if you were to greet them, particularly very close to their holiday, they might say, like, Baruch Baal, I'm fine, or Baruch whatever God they believe. And so your greeting them might cause them to bless, like, what we perceive to be a Vodazara, which is one possibility. Rashi adds that possibly that Shalom is the name of the divine, right? And he says that it's even okay to like put the name of the divine on the non-Jew, um, which is interesting. I, I might think that you might think like to greet someone means I'm in relationship with them. I'm close to them. I like want to know how they're doing. You might have thought that people who are different, who have particularly have different beliefs than me, possibly idolatrous beliefs, I wouldn't want to get close to and know how they are feeling. And the text says that I can. I want to say one, this is my last, 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 last clincher. The, the idea of greeting someone in the Mishnah appears very, very front and center in Masachet Brachot, in Tractate Brachot. And it has a very specific meaning, an, an idea that is presented 
when we talk about greeting someone. And I, I think that the rabbis assume that you know these Mishnayot when you read that you're supposed to greet um, non-Jews in the interest of peace. Here, the Mishnah in Brachot talks about greeting in two different scenarios. In Mishnah chapter two, Mishnah one, um, it's talking about saying the Shema. And what's really crazy about saying the Shema is when it introduces the Shema to us, it talks about if people interrupt you. How do I interact with people when they interrupt you? Now, you might have thought that you should not be interrupted or not greet or anyone when you're saying the Shema because the Shema is a faith statement. But this says, if you're at the paragraph breaks, maybe I won't read the thing, the three variables, where are you in the Shema? Are you in the paragraph break or are you in the middle? What's your relationship to the person who's greeting you? It's talk about people you have to honor, people you fear. And am I initiating the greeting, which seems like it's a more of an interruption, or am I just responding after someone greeted me? And the, the Mishnah ends with Rabbi Yehuda's view that says that during the paragraph breaks of the Shema, I'm allowed to be meshiv shalom l'kol adam. I can respond to anyone, any type of relationship, anyone who shows up. If I'm between, you know, the hafta if I am shamoa, I can pause and they said to me, how are you? I can turn and say, I'm fine, thank you, how are you? That's halacha number one. In the last mishta, in the last lines of Tractate Brachot, it says something very interesting. It says that the rabbis decreed that I can greet my friend, I can be shoel at shalom chavero b'shem, that I can, I, can, I can invoke the divine's name. Nowadays, we don't do this because we're so nervous about saying the divine's name. So even when I tell you this, I'm not going to say the divine's name. But instead of saying to someone like, um, you know, Yivarechecha Hashem, they bring this pasuk here from, from Boaz, I could literally say the divine's name. And this is the last halacha in Masachet Brachot, right? The, the uniqueness of a bracha is that I invoke the God's name. I say the Aleph dash Dalad Nun Yud, right? I, I say God's name for real in a blessing. I'm allowed to invoke God's name for real when I greet another human being. And so what do I learn in the relationship of these two Mishnayot that I hope will add us to what it means when I greet a non-Jew? If I can, while saying the Shema, interrupt and return a greeting to someone, and when I greet someone in general, I can evoke the divine name, what is this telling me? This is my thought. Here it is. If while I'm making a faith statement about that God is one in this world, if another human being who is created in the image of the divine were to greet me, and I would be so involved in my dedication to the divine and knowing what divine is one, that I would diss them and just ignore them and like totally like not respond to them. Obviously, that person would feel very, very hurt. Right? But the Mishnah is telling me, if you would do that, you don't understand what it means that God is one. If you can't see that Selah Malokim and another human being while you're saying Shema and turn to them and, and respond to them, like that's not saying Shema. That's why this Mishnah taught us this halacha and Mishnah Bet before it even tells us the paragraphs of the Shema. And the flip of that is that when I see another human being and I look at them and I say, how are you? Are you Shalem? Are you whole? How are you doing? Not like we do today where we don't really mean it. I can invoke the name of the divine because looking at another human being, I see the face of the divine. The divine is standing before me because that person is created in the image of the divine. And these two halachot that are taught to me in Masachat Brachot with this idea of what it means to look at another person and to hear and to ask them how they're doing, how they're feeling is, is a reflection of my understanding of what the divine is in the world. 
that is to me a very, very powerful idea when I come back to my Mishnah. Because obviously the rabbis know what they taught in Masecha Prachot when they teach me here that I am, I am responding to non-Jews in the interest of peace, right? So um, I, I am instructed that, that people who are very, very different than me, um, also in my belief they're saying are creating the image of the divine and that is why I, when, when I'm being taught this whole message of how to interact with other people, one of the main things it wants to tell me is how to interact with other Jews. And the rabbis in the time period that they're teaching this Mishnah, the relationships with non-Jews are not perfect. In this same chapter of Masech Kitin, it talks about the Sikrakon, the Romans who came in after the shrine of the temple, who did agricultural land grabs. Things were not simple. It's not, everything's not roses. But in my opinion, um, this is a very, very important message that's being taught here that fits with the entire message of, of these two Mishnayot, that Shalom is how I need to interact with everybody, the people in my core community and the people that are on the periphery of my core community, and whether it's because their religious beliefs are different than me, because their religious practice are different than me, because something about their socioeconomic, their age, how they were created by the divine, everyone deserves the same respect because they are all created in the image of the divine. My last line is, to me, it's really interesting when talking about fighting and infighting, that the Mishnah brings a machloket. Now we have all the time in the Mishnah, obviously machloket disputes, but like to me, it's so interesting. When talking about Shalom, Rabbi Yossi doesn't mind saying his opinion, which to me is one of the other beauties of the, of the Mishnah. I can interact with other people in Shalom and I have to respect them and I have to treat them and I have to think about how they're feeling and if I'm hurting their feelings and, uh, and really interact with them the way I'd want to react. But that doesn't mean that I can't disagree. I can disagree. I can say where I think you're wrong. I can say that I have different beliefs than you. I can say that I'm not going to go the whole way with you by, by acting and, you know, in the place where I think that you've crossed the line, I'll help you, I'll support you, but I myself don't want to transgress. I think that's also a really important message for today about that I don't, by treating other people with respect and supporting them and thinking about how they're feeling and acknowledging them as God's creatures, doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that they do. So I want to smidge over the time. I'm happy if anyone has a question um, to, for me to answer it. Um, yes, yes Phil Miller. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to Phil Miller, yeah. Hi. Hi, uh, Rachel, how are you? Thanks so much Good. for this. This was really great. Brings me back to, uh, to, to, uh, to my time at Pardes, uh, learning mission in this way, which is, it was a very special time. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little more about how um, this, these, this, this series of, uh, of Mishnayot have been read uh, throughout the ages. You know, it, it, Shalom, I guess, can mean it, it's an ideal, that this is, a, that Darche Shalom is an ideal pursuit, uh, a hila, if you will, and, and, uh, and as, as you're presenting it. But it seems very often it, it's also, also it's read as a, oh, well, you know, w you know, oh, would that we didn't have to do it this way, uh, that, but that we have to have Kohen, you know, that we didn't have to call the Kohen first. We didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, Ashid Haver would not have to interact with, uh, with an, uh, 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 someone who's an Amart. But, but, you know, too bad, this is what we ha how it has to be. So I wonder if you just talk more about how 
the, the different lives of these uh, Mishnayot and and uh, you know how you know they how they can be uh, how they have uh, interpreted over time. Okay, I understand the question. So first of all, just I'm glad that you mentioned that you learned this way at Purdue before. I learned everything I know about how to learn Mishnah from my uncle Dove Berkovitz, who was the original. <laughs> my my teacher Purdue. also. Um, he was my was teacher also. Amazing, amazing Mishnah teacher. Um, so I'm happy that I got to that you caused me to mention his name. Um, you're right. I, I, I'm making the claim, right? I, I maybe I didn't even articulate this, but these are examples to paint that picture that I told you, so that I can learn that I should even in other situations apply Darkei Shalom as a value to me, because obviously the Mishnah can't list every single thing. I think that you're right. Um, that sometimes people look at this, particularly with a non-Jew, right, and say like, oh, me bigger shalom, their means just so they don't kill me, right? I should be nice to them so they don't kill me. Um, and, and I think, and maybe I should have mentioned that uh, at the beginning. That's why I brought you the, those, the example of what being shoel shalom, I think, means in the Mishnah. To me, that seems much more than uh, they don't kill me. And that's why I emphasize like the reciprocity of like how we're helping them and they helping me and how there's a benefit that I see when I look at those two things. Because to me, that sounds a lot more than I don't want them to kill me. It sounds like there's it could be a meaning, like a mutually beneficial uh, aspect to this relationship. Um, overall, I, I, I haven't done like historical research. I see how the commentators understand it. And to me, it's from the commentators and from the Gemara itself, it seems like they do think Darkei Shalom was a value. The, the, the Gemara on this, on this first Mishnah um, wants to figure out, isn't it even a Torah value, right? I said that it said Amru, they, the rabbi said, and they link it to Darkei, Darkei Noam, and they want, they want to bring a Torah source for it. Um, and so I think for sure in the Gemara and the commentaries look at it as a meta value. You're right that I think sociologically, I don't know if everyone looks at it as a meta value. And I haven't sort of researched every single thing that's ever been written on it. So I don't know if I perfectly um, answered your question, but the more I learn Mishnah on all different places, this value, the underlying value of belief that human beings are created in the image of the divine and therefore are deserving of respect, I actually see in numerous, numerous places. Um, it's, to me, it's not just here, even though here it's concentrated and here, I think it's focused. Um, I think you see it in a number of other places as well, actually. I'm very sad that Lawrence Coburn has left because I wanted to shout out that I have not seen him in a long, long time. <laughs> if you have a relationship with him, say that I wanted to shout it out. <laughs> okay, amazing, amazing. This is a good place for us to pause. Thank you so much for this awesome share today. And thank you all for joining. My pleasure, really my pleasure. Keep up all your good thank work. You. I mean, I mean, thank you so much. You too. Have a, have a, have a great night in Israel.